0: Wow, 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 guys, I just, I had to push this podcast to be sooner than it was scheduled. I have so many podcasts lined up, like, I'm really ahead of my podcast schedule. I have three. I have Diana Rogers, who is doing a documentary on Kale versus Cow. Um, I have... Sarah Morgan, who's a part of my body awareness project and called the Gene Queen, so you know it's gonna be good. And then today I just had to push this up because it's so relevant to the Body Awareness Project. My post that I recently recently did on Acne on Instagram, and just in general, a lot of questions that are coming up about PCOS, about birth control, about other solutions. And um, I just I love this lady. Dr. Lara Bryden is You can tell by her voice and just her demeanor. We've worked together for the last last couple of months because I found her book, and it was kind of a no-brainer that the book was going to be a part of the Body Awareness Project, which, you know, I know you probably are sick of hearing about it, but... In case you are just now listening to this for the first time, I've created an educational online skin program where I also ship you a box of things that immediately help you. So some supplements, some products, and then this book from Dr. Laura Bryden, who is here today. I think you're going to love it. Uh, enjoy it. Some updated events. I'm going to Vancouver, Washington for the Nutritional Therapy Association Conference. I'm going to have a tea booth for Element Tea and an MPAC booth for uh, my Evolve Motion backpack company. So please come see me. If you're in the area, I would love to work out with you slash feed you tea, give you all the tea. Um, and then after that, I'm going to Expo West in Anaheim. I'm going to be with Epic, one of my sponsors. We're going to do some fun happy hours and booth things. It's going to be so cool. I'm actually about to watch Lauren Gibbs on the Olympics. It's, um, Tuesday night. She was in a podcast that I did, episode 11, I believe, in her pursuit of even making the team. And now she's on the Olympics, and I'm going to watch her. That's so cool. Uh, Okay, that's all I got. Enjoy the episode, and I'll see you next week. (laughs) I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. Laura Bryden, we have just—we were laughing about this before I hit record because we've just gotten to know each other so well. <laughs> this is so fun. Welcome to Meathead Hippie.
1: Thanks. It's great to talk to you again.
0: Yeah, we originally got introduced to each other because of your book. Because I knew I wanted the period repair manual in this book for the Body Awareness Project, um, Laura. Uh, Why am I drawing a blank? Empowered, empowered sustenance. Right. Um, Do you know her? Have you talked to her very much?
1: No, no, I. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, go she's, ahead.
0: she's wonderful and she raves about your book and yeah. I was just like, okay, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get this book in the box. And, um, I had a few other people that love the book, so we're just really happy that you are a part of it. We had, we got to talk and get a little video insert into the project from you, but now we get a full conversation all about you. So I'm excited. <laughs> Me
1: too.
0: Um, so you, tell people where you are, where you're based out of.
1: I live in New Zealand, that's where I am this morning, and this morning for me, Christchurch, New Zealand. And I've, it's a bit weird, but I fly over to Sydney, Australia to work in my consulting rooms there with my patients over there. I'm a naturopathic doctor, so my you know, basic work is sort of nine to five in, the, in my clinics, helping women with period problems like PCOS, endometriosis, PMS, all of those. So I've had, and I've been doing that for the last 20 years. So I have a lot of hands-on experience with what works for periods. So you
0: fly from New Zealand to Australia?
1: Yeah. I I only go every couple of months and then I do a little intensive. I'll do like a two-week clinic intensive and then I come back and then I do Skype consults and writing and yeah. oh I love that yeah I structured my life that way (laughs)
0: that's really cool I I have always wanted to come to New Zealand I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and I just ever since I saw it I was like I have to go to New Zealand so and
1: it really um, yeah sorry to jump it truly looks like that too (laughs) uh, isn't (laughs) that cool yeah you'll see it's not enhanced video that's the way this place looks
0: Oh, I need I need some of that magic in my life. Um, how did you get into naturopathic medicine?
1: I started as a scientist, actually. I trained as a scientist, a biologist, and I always loved just the way the body works, the way nature works. And at some point, I realized I wanted to w- work more with people. So I turned my attention to the training for naturopathic medicine in Canada and well, there there's seven um, certified colleges in North America. And I did, I did an extra four years there, just sort of diving deep into you know, how to harness the healing power of the human body.
0: Hmm. I love it. And I just, I just having some people comment about this book, because this is my first experience. I read it, put it in the box, like instantly. You have changed a lot of lives. I oh. don't know if you realize that, but there's been people coming and saying how much, I mean, with so many different issues, but this book just is it's wonderful. And you can tell that I just am appreciative of people that you're not trying to sell anything. You're just trying to get people the tools that they need to heal themselves.
1: You know, my, my mantra, like my sort of two words for myself, which I've never shared on a podcast before, but I'll just say it's, um, quietly subversive. So Mm. I just, I'm the kind of person, I just want to be there in the background, just, you know, putting out the ideas that people need to, as you say, change their lives. You know, I, I get that feeling to the book. And I think of the book as doing that, you know, the book is out there quietly doing its work of helping women to wake up to themselves, you know, to their own bodies and what they're capable of and to see through some of the emperor's new clothes kind of myths about hormonal birth control that Mm. permeate our current approach to women's health i've already got into
0: no we're doing it (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: first off i love that you have a mantra i think everyone needs one if they don't have one just create one just the first thing that pops in your head and change it as needed but mine has always been um strong capable badass superhero but then i had a yeah. i had to cut the superhero because of some legal issues but i still like the <laughs> i still love the mantra i still say it in my head so um that's a good mantra well let's yeah. talk about it let's dig into it cuz that's your that is your thing like yeah. uh, teaching people about birth control of what it does why people are so easily put on it i just i think it's going to be i'm just going to let you go for it and see yeah. What's the best place to start? What could I ask? I guess how did you work like through your practice? Was it when you started to see all the um, clients come to you with the same issues? Was that really what woke you up?
1: I think it was an aha moment. I think it's the phrase I just said, which is "emperor's new clothes." You know, Mm. because I grew up, of course, you know, women in my generation were all being put on the pill. It's just because we're in the generations where that's what happens. We just tend to take it for granted. But at some moment. You know, I just sort of you know, it's it dawned on me using my scientist-trained brain, it's like this is weird what mm-hmm. we're doing to women. This cannot be right. It is not to be overly dramatic, but it is castration. It's a chemically mm-hmm. induced menopause. The way those drugs work, and they're not real hormones, the way the drugs work is they shut down women's hormonal systems and replace them replace our own hormones with these substandard drugs called levongestrol and drosprenone that have side effects and cause anxiety and depression and are not good for muscles or training. And mm. yeah, at some point I just thought, what the heck are we doing? Mm. I'm, I'm the more I think about it, I'm so convinced that future generations will look back at this time, this yes, 50 years of doing this to women and just think that was weird. That does not make sense, yeah of-
0: no. well, it's and you know this more than I will, but what isn't it true that in the sixties they played around with not played around, but they were studying both men male birth control and female birth control, but since male's testes shrunk, they were not able they were like, "Oh God, that's dangerous, let's just keep it for the women
1: yeah, well, and there's still actually to be fair currently there's a they're looking to bring to market um hormonal birth control for men. It works in the same way. You know, it already works in women, it's to shut down. They use a progestin drug to shut down testicular function, the same way you shut down ovarian mm. function, which is bad. <laughs> but yeah. then, in the, in the case of this new one for men, they're then the, rep- the hormone replacement they're giving is actually a natural testosterone, which is better than women ever got because we've never, you know, the hormonal birth control that has been used has never contained what's called bioidentical or actual mm. hormones with their many benefits. So, yeah, it's never existed for men because it would castration
0: well what yeah, yeah that's very and it's meant <laughs> it's immense yeah,
1: oh God, it makes you so mad,
0: okay, so why wouldn't they do bio uh, why wouldn't they do bioidentical hormones for have they ever played around with that is that something that they people i mean they do it for thyroid correct so yep. what is, why wouldn't they do it for women yeah why I wonder why
1: yeah, how that' all happened okay so well, first of all to to do the job of suppressing hormonal function, ovarian function, or in the case of men, testicular function, you need a progestin drug. Natural progesterone cannot reliably do that. Mm. So even in the case of men, they're, they're giving them a synthetic progestin, which is not progesterone. Okay. As if, when this comes to market, if this ever comes to market for men. So from the beginning, it was never an option to use natural progesterone to do that job. And then they just most of the time came in with a synthetic estrogen to try to alleviate some of the side effects because it doesn't feel very nice to have your hormones switched off so they came in with an estrogen to sort of help with mood and help to buffer some of those side effects but and there are a couple of newer products that do use a bioidentical estrogen i always get asked about them it's brand names like zoli and there's a couple others i think and they are the estrogen part is natural it's still hormone replacement which is not as good as making your own estrogen but it's arguably a little bit better, but it still has the progestin drug. It always has to, but it, yeah, it's that's just the way that drug works.
0: So when women take birth control, let's just start from the beginning. So everyone really understands what's happening because I know I didn't understand it. And I still am like, wait, I did what to my body? Cause I was on it for, I think it was 13. I went to a pediatrician. I had bad acne. I was there for my stomach issues or something irrelevant, but the pediatrician saw my skin and said, you should go on birth control for your, your skin. And so at 13 is the age that I was put on birth controls of super young age. And then kind of on and off for almost 10, nine to 10 years. And, uh, I just did, I just took it because to me it was whatever helps with my skin. And so, yeah. um, there's different types of birth control. And I know that it will come up of if, if I do take birth control, what's the best type for me. So I would love to talk through the types of birth control, the estrogen, the ones that have more progesterone, ones that don't have as much, like all the forms. And then also the Morena's and the, the IUDs.
1: Okay. Well, you know, this whole thing they say, Oh, you just have to find the one that fits you. I don't buy that phrase. You know, none of those drugs, Excuse me. Fit the human physiology. They all work pretty much well, apart from the Marina IUD. They all work by suppressing, shutting down ovarian function. Mm. So they're not fitting in with anything natural. The dosing of the the amount of synthetic estrogen that they use, the you know the type of progestin that they choose, all of that's going to be based on just how prone someone is to breakthrough bleeding and kind of what they, the dose of drug they need to prevent breakthrough bleeding. Pretty much. Mm. I and mean, you know what I guess which progestin causes the least side effects so I'll just say again progestin I keep using the word progestin that's the drug the progesterone like drug that they use it's not the same as progesterone at all it's not the same as our own body is it true is it true that
0: it was um derived from wild yam?
1: almost all steroid drugs are huh. so you know I think originally I don't know where they got it from originally like in the lab when you make these steroid drugs or biodentical hormones, they're all coming from some of the same plant precursors. Mm.
0: It's crazy. Nature yeah. has it all. <laughs> um, okay. So we have, so sorry, progester- yeah.
1: progestin. So I'll just say the different, I don't really care much about the different types of hormonal birth control. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they're all having the same negative effect, which is mm. robbing women of their own hormones. The distinction I'd make, I guess, is the Marina IUD. We'll talk about that for a minute. It's the drug levonorgestrel. So this would be Marina or Skyla or any of the hormonal IUDs. The, the, the way they differ is just to do with the dose of levonorgestrel that's delivered in, directly into the uterus. It doesn't always suppress ovulation. It doesn't need to suppress ovulation to prevent pregnancy. So it uh, it it's a lower dose than say a levonorgestrel pill which would be a like a mini pill or a lot of the the standard birth control pills use that same drug levonorgestrel but okay. it does prevent it does suppress ovulation for the majority of cycles for the majority of women at least for the first year and then after that women may be able to ovulate and make some of their own hormones as well for so for that reason i've always thought it was the lesser evil but what's Good interesting man. is in the big danish study that came out in late 2016 that linked hormonal birth control with depression and anxiety the marina iud actually was one of the worst and i think it's because i think it's because it doesn't have estrogen so a progestin drug on its own is potentially quite bad for mood Estro the estrogen synthetic estrogen will help to reduce that effect to some degree mm. um so i think that's the reason and just to clarify our own progesterone that we make the natural hormone is good for mood mm-hmm. so that's one area where the the progesterone and the progesterone are quite different well
0: yeah because isn't it it's so true and i'm sure you've seen this over and over uh, the biggest thing i hear about is okay i stopped birth control and i feel like a crazy human like very emotional very all over the place um just like can't control that it doesn't you don't feel in control of anything
1: yeah so that could be what happens when the ovaries kick into action if they kick into action quite strongly and you start to get your own estrogen going up and down in a way that you know you haven't experienced for years or possibly decades that can that temporary that can go on for a few months that can um that it usually passes, but that's how I would interpret that. Most people, most of the patients I talk to immediately feel their mood lift when they come off. the pill. So mm. it's, you know, another experience is, Oh, I just feel brighter, you know, better.
0: Good. And talk to me about that study, the Danish study of, uh, being linked yeah. to anxiety and depression. That's so huge. And yeah. I have so many theories of like, I just am so excited to talk to you. I get like, This is good. This is really good. Okay. Talk to me about the Danish study.
1: Yeah. So they looked at they followed 1.1 wait for it million women, (laughs) which is just a huge wow. Um, Over 13 years,
0: about damn time, right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) The way they did it is they went into the they got permission to kind of go in and look at medical records and tracked you know of women and girls who were prescribed hormonal birth control. How many of them ended up on antidepressants? That's kind of how they did the study. So, they were able to detect a very significant correlation. And then, of course, the, the criticism from some of the mainstream medicine when that study came out is well, they didn't prove caus- causation. No, they didn't prove causation. So, I know potentially there are other factors at play, but anyone who works with women will have observed that for many women, not all, but for many women, hormonal birth control does have a negative effect on mood. So I think for many people, that was not a surprise. That was just a much needed confirmation. of mm. what
0: we're doing. And w- what is it that's, you know, they are they still on birth control when they're also starting the antidepressants? Is it, yeah. is it just because our body is like confused about this, you know, kind of foreign, foreign hormone that's in, I, like, what is that I mean, process?
1: Well, I really, I truly believe from my understanding of the body and the literature that it's the progestin drugs, like levonorgestrel, like we talked about, like those are so the names of the progestins that are commonly used. They have a depressive effect on the brain. Mm-hmm. They have an anxiety-promoting pr- pr- effect on the brain. That's not, that's not, that wasn't proven in that study, but that's mm-hmm. the way I would interpret it. And what's interesting is what you say, yeah, women are they're still on the pill. They develop depression. No one thinks to say, oh, maybe you should just stop the pill and you'll be fine. Instead they also get an antidepressant on top of that. And that's really common for teenagers. I see that a lot. <laughs> They'll say, oh, I started so after I was put on this antidepressant when I was 15. And then my question will be, okay, so what happened when you were, you know, 14 or 15, you know, when did you go on the pill? It's like, oh yeah, nine months before I started the pill for my skin. And to <laughs> me it just stands out as a glaringly obvious narrative
0: progression. Yes. story
1: of what yeah. happened. And in fact, in the those those few women and not few, but you know, those women and girls that do notice the the difference and think, oh, maybe it's this drug I'm taking, maybe it's this pill, I'm gonna stop it and see how my mood is, those all of those cases were not picked up in the Danish study. So for that reason, the scientists who did that study, they knew that and they said, okay, so this are their results were actually an underestimate, if that makes sense, because they didn't mm-hmm. actually, they weren't able to account for all the women who actually were just kind of savvy enough to think, oh, maybe I don't need an antidepressant. Maybe I just need to stop the pill. Mm. So if, it'd be interesting if they'd had a, had a way to track all of that as well, what the numbers would look like. Yeah. And it was, it was,
0: I have this a uh, question for you, probably more so it's a little bit of a selfish question, but just curious. So I just don't, I struggle with very similar symptoms of, I, I don't ever go to the doctor, so I never have been like really diagnosed, but slightly irregular periods, way more regular now that I've just worked on this for a couple of years. Um, very, very low progesterone. So it's been this like constant battle. So it's kind of this telltale sign of PCOS of having this kind of higher androgens, lower progesterone path. And I just, I'm always curious, is it because I was on birth control?
1: I, yeah, I won't... I it's okay. Not, don't, yeah. no, it's, it's, not, it's not so much that I'm reluctant to answer. You know, about you specifically, it's more just that that actual question—the the science isn't there to prove that. Mm. So I'm reluctant to go on the record and say absolutely for sure. Yes, I think it's possible. You know, I think there are lots of things in our modern world that are driving some women to the state of androgen excess. It's mm-hmm. um, quite a common pattern. Whether you end up with the di- fully in the diagnosis of PCOS or not, or if you're just tending to androgen excess. Yeah. It was lots of things working against then Certainly we know that um, exposure to, for example, endocrine disrupting chemicals or hormone disrupting chemicals play a role. And on that topic, you know, the pill is an endocrine disrupting chemical. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is in that category of things. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's- possibility.
0: Well, it's just so interesting how it's, I mean, it's more and more common to have clients with PCOS. Like this is just, I've just heard it more and more. And I don't, I don't know if it's just because the doctors are like, we don't really know what to do with this. So we're going to put you into this category of PCOS of, or if it's just, just our the way we eat. It. I mean, it could be everything, right? So um, I guess let's just, I want to jump into PCOS, the symptom of higher androgens and one, you know, higher testosterone with women that have that, uh, for you, if you could help explain, you will do a way better job than I will of what some of those symptoms would look like and, um, how your, your favorite ways to kind of mitigate the, the androgens and a way to like slow down the, the creation of them.
1: Great. Okay. So first of all, I'll just respond to, what you said there, that we're seeing a lot more diagnosis of PCOS. One of the reasons is that quite honestly, (laughs) quite serious, you know, doctors are trigger happy Mm. with the diagnosis. Okay. Because of something called the Rotterdam criteria that came out, I guess, or 10 or 15 years ago, that allowed for quite a loose diagnosis, (laughs) quite a loose criteria for diagnosis, a lot easier to fall under the diagnostic umbrella of PCOS now than it used to be. And one of the big problems that allowed that to happen, and that is basically means that women who don't have PCOS have been told that they do, is because the Rotterdam criteria allowed for diagnosis to be made based on ultrasound. And I'll just, I want to start with that because if you are, any of your listeners out there, if you've been told you have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome based on an ultrasound finding, that's not enough. You know, mm-hmm. those, that polycystic appearance of ovaries on ultrasound can mean nothing. It can be normal. We know that at least uh, uh, at least one in four normal women, women with normal hormones, will show polycystic ovaries at least some of the time. And then a few months later, it changes because the ovaries are constantly changing. Those follicles are being reabsorbed and the, the, the ovaries make a new batch of follicles, which are just the eggs. So it's a ve- it's been a very confusing thing yeah, and scary too, because uh, if you don't, I mean, fair enough, if you're just a lay person, you don't know what that polycystic means. It sounds bad. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like it sounds <laughs> like it's gross on the ovaries. It's like, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that cycle you made more eggs than say the average woman, like we're every cycle we're making batches of, you know, up, up to well, anywhere, up, any, anywhere is, is normal, up to probably about 25 eggs per cycle, per ovary, mm. for a young woman. So we know if you're a teenager or in your early 20s, you can have up to 25 follicles there. That's fine. That's not PCOS. Um, ah. But eventually, you do want to, at least some of the cycles, be seeing what's called a dominant follicle, which is the big egg that went all the way to ovulation. You know, that's, the, that's a more normal finding is to start to see those larger developed follicles. So I hope that that's our starting point to say ultrasound is, is it's not the
0: end all be all. No. Yeah.
1: It caused a lot of confusion and a lot of grief. And there was recently a new article, kind of more like an editorial in the British medical journal, which is a very prestigious journal. Call it like calling that out, basically saying to doctors, "Okay, you need to stop scaring the bejesus out of your patients because of yeah. sound finding because it doesn't mean anything."
0: Good. Okay. Yeah,
1: it, it certainly doesn't mean anything in terms of future fertility because we know that women with a PCOS tendency, if you will, actually often go on to have a better fertility, higher, longer-lasting fertility as they get older compared to the rest of us. So it's
0: I didn't know that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that that's one thing. So. Okay, so beyond that, the way the condition is diagnosed is based on symptoms. The two defining symptoms are irregular periods, so not regular ovulation, and yeah, higher male hormones, either higher male hormones visible on blood tests or just showing up as symptoms like facial hair, hair loss to some extent, acne to some extent, although acne can be from a lot of different things, but definitely the facial hair called hirsutism, you know, that's mm-hmm. fairly close to being diagnostic, although it can be caused by other things too. So it's a real problem. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like PCOS isn't a real problem because it is. There's certainly women out there who are struggling with those symptoms and they qualify for the PCOS diagnosis. And then of course, the next step is what do you do about it. Yep. <laughs> and the, you know, doctors the conventional thinking on this fortunately is changing a little bit. It used to just be take the pill and that's the end of the story, mm. which I strongly disagree with that strategy. And so do a lot of experts. So it's not just NatchPath saying that's the wrong way to handle it. It's that's the yeah, you know, that's the wrong way to handle it, according to a lot of people, including um uh, a doctor, Dr. Pryor, who's an endocrinologist, who's a hormone specialist, who is a professor and a researcher, and she helped me with my book, and she, yeah, states very clearly, the pill is not treatment for PCOS because it just masks, it does mask the symptoms,
0: mm-hmm. but it
1: doesn't help with the underlying problem that you can't ovulate regularly, mm-hmm. because it suppresses ovulation, so in a way, it's you know, not yeah. doing anything, it's arguably making it worse, And also it's not doing anything to correct one of the main underlying drivers of PCOS, which in many cases, not every case, but in many cases is insulin Insulin. resistance. Yeah. Are your listeners familiar with that?
0: They are. Yeah. So insulin resistance, um, they are just because of probably more recent podcasts. And also if they're following along with the body awareness projects that we've talked, we've posted a lot more about it, but uh, just the, the paradigm. It's just interesting to me because, and the reason I love it is because when people are like, okay, I do have PCOS and not just, you know, kind of bumped into this category, but I really do have these symptoms and uh, the true diagnosis of it. One of the biggest things is just how hard it is for them to lose weight and see results. And when you think of it, it just makes so much sense because insulin is such a storage hormone. So it's, it's this paradigm of that is always the place people go is with blood sugar control. And so I'm excited to hear about your thoughts of insulin and just in case they're, you know, not familiar with it, just saying it from the beginning would be perfect because I do yeah. think um, this is something that you can never hear enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a really important condition, and it's very common, very very common. Even if put it this way, um, it's it's linked with PCOS. Often they're, they're happening together. It's a big feature of PCOS. But you can have insulin resistance and not have PCOS as well. So it's a you know it's a common problem. It's a condition of pre essentially pre diabetes. Mm. It's a condition of high insulin. And it cannot be ruled out by a blood test for blood sugar. So it really, with my patients, I, I prefer to test insulin. To
0: yeah. Test insulin. And you have to do that in a, with a doctor, correct? There's no yeah. way to test insulin at home.
1: No, no. But there is another marker of insulin resistance that you can test at home, which is waist measure. Mm. So insulin resistance creates the apple-shaped body shape. So mm-hmm. if you if you if you're finding it difficult to lose weight around your waist specifically around your middle that's pretty close to being diagnostic for insulin resistance and again I'll just say you could have that you could be in that situation have high insulin and your blood sugar is normal. Mm-hmm. So that's it's the good yeah, had so, I've had so many readers and patients tell me it's like no I I'm fine you know my blood sugar is fine that's not what I have to deal with but yeah it, it it's best if you I guess if you have PCOS to kind of assume insulin resistance and less proven Otherwise.
0: Otherwise, Yeah. I always say, and I'm curious your thoughts of any signs and symptoms outside of just blood testing to get tangible results with a doctor uh, when you get a little sleepy after meals, of course. And what I noticed is for me, it was not even a heavy carb meal, like a typical, like a pizza made me tired or a hamburger made me tired. It was like, some, a half a sweet potato made me tired. I just had no way to like even handle some carbohydrates. But I also, this is a rant, I think it's because I went so low carbohydrate for so long that I induced insulin re- resistance.
1: I think, well, certainly you can, I see it. Yeah, I see insulin resistance after, after times of dieting or under eating. Mm. Or, but yeah, post low carb, yeah, I think you're right. I think it, there's something that ha- it's, it takes a while to regain your insulin
0: Sensitivity.
1: sensitivity yeah and also one other thing about insulin sensitivity this is just a little perk that we have as women estrogen enhances insulin sensitivity so as women we've already gotten an oh, wow. advantage over men in terms of our insulin sensitivity which means we're better able to tolerate carbohydrates than they are Hmm. I think of that as like a little superpower. Yes.
0: Well, it makes, that makes sense. Is that why women, cause this is, I kind of go crazy with this keto for women thing because you know, I know it works for some people, but I just have a really hard time believing that our hormones do well under 50 grams of carbs a day, long-term. Let's
1: let's talk about that. And I'm interested to have a you know, a conversation like I just yeah. just, just putting it out there because I know everyone's having lots of different experiences. I'll I'll just share what I observe. Okay, yes, please. So, I think for my patients who are truly insulin resistant, who have very high insulin, probably have PCOS, who and um, having difficulty losing weight, I think there's a place for a temporary low carb diet. I think that can definitely help to shift things with insulin, but then at a certain point once some of the insulin sensitivities regained, I think then there's a sweet spot where if you keep going with a low carb diet, you're going to move into another situation of developing symptoms because of being too low carb. So there's a, there's a, there's a ah, timeline. I love that. There's picking the right person who actually would do well on it. There's mm-hmm. the t- you know, paying attention to how long you do it. Mm-hmm. And there's an age thing too. I, um, I do, I think, I think it is worth saying that I think women after menopause potentially can do better on ketogenic because they're already tending more to insulin resistance, uh, but women that in, makes you know, sense. in reproductive decades, twenties, thirties, you know, into late forties, we need a certain amount of carbohydrate to be able to ovulate. And that's true for everyone. That's called ovarian set point. Mm. And we, you know, some women can get away with some of it. It, ovulation is the test right like if you can go low carb and still ovulate every month then you know it's working at least for that time in your life but if after 3 or 6 months your periods disappear that is a sign that you are not eating enough carbohydrate mm. to be able to ovulate and most likely someone in that situation would be having other downstream effects from that so suppressed thyroid um losing hair yeah mm. <laughs> I see it on, I measure, I pick it up on blood tests. So if I think someone's been under eating carbs, I look for low insulin, insulin that's too low, Mm. um, low LH hormone, which is the pituitary hormone that stimulates ovulation. I'll see that suppressed low T3, which is the active thyroid hormone, that pattern, low insulin plus low LH plus low T3. I'm like, okay, you have not been eating enough
0: carbohydrates oh Enough. Potatoes. yeah and and we talked about this in our other video about how the cer the right types of carbs not fructose but glucose can be really nourishing and healing you know the rice and the yeah. uh potatoes and those foods which i thought was yeah. so great because it's true it's like there's a very clear difference between carbs versus carbs <laughs> so you know there's not it's not all carbs are created equal no um,
1: and the reason yeah Sorry. It's yeah, no, no, is, no. It's
0: okay. I have so yeah. many places to go with this. I can't even <laughs> love this conversation.
1: So <laughs> research is becoming more clear about high-dose fructose as really, I think, one of the biggest drivers of insulin resistance. It induces insulin resistance pretty quickly hmm. um, in humans and in animal studies when fructose is above a certain threshold. So fructose is one of those things where, again, there's a, a sweet spot. So you know, a low dose fructose, which would just be the amount you'd get from whole fruit and vegetables and that coming in. The body seems to thrive on that and do quite well. And then there's just this point of where you go past that and the the body's in trouble. Yeah. Sensitivity is really impaired. And it's not hard to get there with, if you're having fruit juice and sweetened yogurts and ice cream and date balls and paleo desserts, and you can get past that threshold pretty
0: easily. Oh, I totally thought of you. I was, (laughs) I thought thought of you yesterday because we had talked about the dates and, uh, I I did this little partner recipe with vital proteins, the collagen and, um, the recipe was like, dates are optional. And I was like, yes, Dr. Brighton would be so excited because it's mostly good fats. And then the dates are a plus versus most things. It's all dates with a little bit of fat or a little bit of nut or whatever it is. Um, I have a question. So, Uh, the thing, well, first I did want to ask this because I forgot to ask you this in our last little clip, the fruit and fructose, um, confirming that fruit is okay on your watch or do you limit it? Um, does the fiber counteract that fructose to the point where it's, it's okay occasionally, or do you just say, keep eating fruits and vegetables, but let's cut down on the rest of the fructose?
1: Yeah, it's rare that I would, I, I can't well it's rare that i would say to not have fruit unless there's a digestive problem with fruit which is another issue around fructose it's fructose malabsorption which is can be is temporary and can be fixed but in terms of insulin and metabolism i yeah my focus is on the other more concentrated sugars and it's just because of the dose and yeah the as you say the fiber that comes along with it the nutrition that comes along with it Whole fruit. That said, I really don't like my patients to be having a giant fruit salad for breakfast. You know, that is Mm. that is not the path to feeling well. I'm with many people, especially if they're tending to insulin resistance. I am a fan of a low carb breakfast, so more of a protein, fat, vegetable kind of based breakfast, and then you know, coming in later in the day with some starch and a bit of fresh fruit, the amount that, you know, kind of feels good, but never sitting down to a meal of fruit salad, because that's just not food for humans.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For totally perfect. And then um, for you, do you just, I, I, before I forget, I don't want to forget to ask about fasting since you mentioned breakfast. Do you find fasting to be therapeutic for people with insulin resistance? Uh, do, do some people do better with it than others? I've had a weird journey with fasting, with intermittent fasting. Yeah. Of, I don't, I don't think it, my body likes it, but I think it's because I've had a lot of uh, eating issues in the past. And so I think yeah. my body s- instantly stresses out when I don't eat.
1: Yeah. Well, it does. So for anybody actually not eating fasting is a stressful state so that that's where the individuality comes in so if someone is already struggling with coping you know inability to cope with stress and maybe that that refers to the what's called mm-hmm. the hpa or the adrenal axis you know people who need help in that area often don't feel well fasting for too long that said i'm not i'm not totally anti it i think with my patients, with, because I work mostly with women, I tend to go with what I call gentle gentle fasting, which is, here's an example of what it looks like, which is, you know, have your dinner, let's say seven o'clock, then don't eat again until nine the next morning. You know, that's, yeah. that's a 14-hour fast, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. my husband laughs when I, he's like, that's really just like a normal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not eating until breakfast kind of thing doesn't really seem like a fast per se but it is yeah you know it's an overnight fast and i think that's beneficial and i think women i think you can if you're more struggling with a more severe insulin resistance i think you can extend that a little bit if it feels good you could maybe push that till 10 or a bit later extend that morning fasting and extend it even further by making the first meal low carb yeah that's the way to keep insulin down it's just a handy easy strategy you then get the protein in the morning cuz you really you need that for circadian rhythm and for yeah stabilizing the HPA axis i think i think to go too long in the morning without at least getting some protein maybe doesn't do good things to the nervous system and the circadian rhythm.
0: Mm, I love that you said that. And I can't wait to have you be a part of my next body awareness project because Mm -hmm. it's going to be about adrenals and circadian rhythm. It's going to be so good. I love that we connected. Um, Okay. More questions that I thought of the ovulation we were talking about, you know, I I think obviously people know when they have their period, right? So they're bleeding, but how does someone know if they're ovulating? What are the signs I've, you know, I think people kind of know the temperature. Sometimes people know there actually can be a little bit of pain in the ovaries. I was yes. just, what are your favorite yes. top five like symptoms of like yes, you're ovulating?
1: Okay, so let's let's do this. But let me first say, that this is an important thing to mention: it is possible to be having periods, even somewhat regular periods, and not be ovulating.
0: Mm. Yes, are called
1: anovulatory cycles. Quite common with PCOS.
0: I was going to ask how common that was, that for you, you to see in your yes, practice. Yes,
1: quite a strong feature. Okay. Yes. So, um, the Well, the first sign is, um, fertile mucus. So it's, a, it's a particular kind of vaginal discharge that looks like raw egg white, which is quite surprising when you see it for the first time after coming off the pill, for example. Yeah. It's it's a quite a handy little marker that your body's trying to ovulate it's seeing for tummy because it's not a guarantee that you will ovulate them because you okay. can see it, it. It's just a, it happens when your your body's making a lot of estrogens. So, yeah, but it's it's a hopeful sign, That it's a good sign. Then, yeah, you can get a little twinge in the ovary. They call that Michel Schmerz. It's actually has a name. It's like a little What's thing. it called? Michel Schmerz? Yeah. It's a German name. It's in my book. It's, <laughs> um, it just means ovarian kind of twinging pain that's quite distinctive. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, your temperatures go up, your basal body temperature goes up um, after ovulation. So if you're tracking temperatures, you start to see a nice curve, like it, it's a bimodal. So you know, you're you of at a certain level of temperatures before ovulation and then you go up by about half a degree and then you stay up until your period comes. So that's quite easy to detect. The other way to know for certain that you ovulated is the blood test for progesterone, which you mentioned earlier that, you know, I guess in your case that have been coming back low sometimes, I Mm -hmm. I really need to emphasize that it testing progesterone depends on the time of the cycle so much. I've, I've had so, I can't even tell you so many patients totally panicked that they have low progesterone when they actually just did the test at the wrong time in their cycle, because it's normal to have no progesterone before ovulation and ovulation happens if it happens at all it happens about 10 to 14 days before the period so that's not the kind of classic day 14 ovulation that we hear about if someone has a 35 day cycle for example which is normal mm-hmm. ovulation happens on day 21 so there is no reason you don't want to be testing progesterone before you get to about day 27 or 28 which is halfway through that what's called the luteal phase. Mm. So it's really and you can't know until your actually your period actually comes. So what I say to my patients and what I say in the book is estimate, you know, test test progesterone thinking you've got it at the right time of your cycle but then wait for your actual period to come and then ask yourself the question did my was the test done within the two weeks or at least within the 10 days of my period? Because if not, then it's not a valid test. You could just throw it in the garbage basically.
0: I'm so glad you said that. And it's, do you prefer, I mean, I do Dutch testing. Like that was, I think the hardest thing for people when they're trying to do Dutch testing. I'm familiar with that. I've done salivary testing um, and blood testing. Do you have a preference of what you...
1: I just do blood testing, blood
0: testing. I, okay.
1: Yeah. I just, for me, it's just easier, cheaper. I mean, it's it, it, well, it, you can't do it at home. So that's I like guess one disadvantage.
0: Yeah. But, but it's and, way faster.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of, and I, I feel more confident about the levels. I don't have a lot of experience with Dutch testing. I'm not, I'm not against it. I just don't. That's the something I've really used.
0: To well, it's, it's so dependent. It's the same thing. It's dependent on the cycle. Like test I feel like testosterone and with the estrogen, of course, you can get great markers of like DHT conversion and right. also E1, E2, E3. But with progesterone, it's still, if this person doesn't understand their ovulation, which is very common because they are still trying to understand their hormones. So how could they really know if they are ovulating or when they are? Uh, it's very easy to get the typical low, low, low progesterone. Yeah. You know, so it makes sense. So it's good to know that there's faith in still just blood tests um, Yeah. that you still because i think a lot of times people i've heard like it's all crap and i'm like well what do you use if it's you can't get an accurate reading off of something so that's good
1: no a blood test is good. it's all it depends on what question you're asking right like with any kind yeah. of test it's not like there's one best type of testing it's like what are we trying to answer here what is the question and if the question is are you ovulating the answer a blood test progesterone is the best way to find that out or temperature which is also quite good and i'll just conclude that little discussion about progesterone testing by saying this for someone who has a long cycle say a 35 or 40 day cycle um their progesterone is going to be really low for the majority of the cycle
0: Mm. and that's
1: normal because keep in mind it's only the last 10 to 14 days when there's any progesterone at all
0: Mm. i'm so glad you said that that's so good so like for somebody that has that uh do you suggest, cause I know, I love that you use herbs in your book. I'm um, yeah. with restoring re- regular periods uh, I have this tea. I, I'm sure I can find a way to ship it to New Zealand cause I want you to try it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so it's peony root and some, um, I have licorice, peony and chasberry. I just would love to know like, okay, so we do have somewhat of lower progesterone naturally cause we have longer cycles. So d- is it best to time those progesterone boosting herbs or support at certain times of your cycle?
1: Yeah. So there, the, so peony and licorice, which is in your tea, which is um, also one of the medicines that I give a lot to my patients. I give it as tablet form. Oh, cool. Okay, great. But, but the tea should be good as well. Just keeping in mind, everyone, all your listeners, please that licorice can increase blood pressure. So please be careful and check your blood pressure and don't take it if you have high blood pressure. But yes. um, it works by... Promoting ovulation, so it works. It lowers it lowers male hormones um, at the same kind of all in one. Like because the situation of PCOS is the ovary is not doing the right thing. It's making more male hormones than it should be. It's not progressing to ovulation as it should be. So, and a lot of that's because of insulin. But the peony and licorice combination works on the communication between. That pituitary and the ovaries and helps the ovaries to dial back, dial down the number of male hormones they're making and also progress to ovulation mm. more appropriately. And so you, it, it definitely needs to be taken essentially every day. Although the way I use that herbal combination is to take, I, I like to stop it for about five days per month, just okay. to prevent attenuation of its effect. That's my reason for doing that. And so I will typically stop it from day the first day of the period until the fifth, you know, the fifth day of the cycle. So oh, that's perfect. that makes sense. Okay, it just kind of it's like a little reset, and then okay, back to taking it every day. So that's the way I use it. I do you know, some herbalists have different views about that, but that seems to what what works best. And that combination, peony and licorice, recently underwent a clinical trial Ooh. in Australia for PCOS. And it did pretty well, like it outperformed, I think from memory, like it outperformed metformin and oh. used to treat um, PCOS. So it's it's on the radar of um, quite a helpful treatment. It's up there kind of with um, the other one that gets a lot of research is something called Inositol, which also helps. It's a nutritional supplement that helps to promote ovulation in PCOS type situations. And the other one I use is magnesium is my number one supplement for PCOS because it helps to normalize insulin sensitivity.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I wanted to get into micronutrients before we closed out. I have a question. I have felt like, um, especially in comparison to metformin in the studies about berberine versus metformin, do you use berberine a bit in your practice?
1: Yeah, I do. Okay.
0: I'm obsessed with berberine. I just, I mean, obviously therapeutically and, you know, maybe not long-term, but I just, I can't believe some of the responses I've had with it, with insulin.
1: Yeah. It's good for insulin. It's good for acne as well. Like really, really good.
0: Um, I love it. And so quick, quick question before I get to micronutrients, if somebody comes off the pill and they're clearly, maybe it is that surplus of, uh, I'm just going to do this. This is my sister for an example. She, she will love that I'm asking this, so I don't feel bad saying it publicly. (laughs) Um, she's, She when she got off the pills, she just could not, it took her a long time to kind of get that mood regulated. And so is there a benefit to taking, you know, what, is it just kind of like allow your body to regulate? What is the that first, I feel crazy post pill. Outside of the ones that do feel really good and feel that lifted up and yeah. um, cleanse, if it's the adverse yeah. reaction, what where do people go? It's a good place to take them to.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. No, I, I don't. I don't just let them suffer. No, it's like <laughs> it's, I have, yeah, but it's like it's good to know that it, it won't last. You know, as soon as you start to have regular cycles, it should regulate out. But in the meantime, yeah, I come in with things that are helpful for mood, which includes magnesium. Mm -hmm. and zinc, and vitamin B6, Um, using a bit of natural progesterone cream can also kind of help to settle the mood. I think one of the things that causes these estrogen surge, irritability, maybe mood symptoms, um, depending on the exact what's happening with someone. But one of the things that can happen is this can be, um, it can do with um, histamine intolerance because Mm -hmm high estrogen if surging estrogen can um, create a lot of histamine in the body which then has creates anxiety and insomnia and so if that's i wrote a, a post called the, the curious connection between histamine and estrogen a blog post so people if they're thinking that, oh way, yeah with them they could check in with that
0: i'll and plug that poss- in
1: yeah the other possibility is a different sort of problem where If after coming off the pill, there's just nothing happening, like the ovaries are dead quiet, then that creates a low estrogen kind of mood, which is more like a depression, I guess, kind of a, that doesn't feel very nice either. And in that case, it's about trying to support the body. What kind of ask the body, like, what do you need to be able to ovulate now? (laughs) Like, what is it that you need? And a lot of the time it might be more food. You know, eating enough to be able to ovulate, maybe taking some zinc, um, taking the, the chase tree, you referred to another herbal method that can be quite helpful if there's just a, seems to be a stalled ovary, like stalled ovulation, just nothing happening. So there's kind yeah. of a two it can go both ways. The ovaries can start surging and going crazy and breast tenderness and all it's all happening, or just, oh, there's nothing happening.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's good that you explained that. Cause I I've heard both angles and that's, yeah, it's totally two, di- totally different situations of how you would take it. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask in your book, cause I just want, I've, I just think it's not talked about very much, but alopecia. Um, yes. and I just wanted to know if you could touch on that. That's something, you know, an autoimmune disorder. I'm not super familiar with it, except of, what, you know, with women and seeing the symptoms of it, but the hair loss that happens, is it always with androgen dominance?
1: Okay. Let's, yeah, let's define it a little bit. Cause this is a, it's a common problem and distressing too. Like I, yes. I with my patients, uh, this is probably the most tears that I've had in my office are about mm-hmm. hair loss <laughs> compared to almost anything else. It's, it, can, it can be quite upsetting.
0: Yeah. So
1: al- alopecia means hair loss. There's a specific type of alopecia called alopecia areata, which is autoimmune, which is a separate kind of issue. Okay. That, that type of hair loss looks like actual, like whole spots, like whole chunks of hair that have come out. That's, it's re- reasonably not that common. So that would be a separate issue, but the hormonal hair loss, so the, what's called androgenic or androgenetic alopecia is not autoimmune. Okay. It's from exposure to male hormones. And that can happen for a few reasons. So here's the scenarios that I see. Um, it can happen because of the type of birth control. So uh, there are certain types of birth control that are called high androgen index birth control. So that would include the drug leave which is actually the most common one used in pills. Uh, it has a high androgen index. It causes hair loss. And this, the extent of the problem is quite large and has been largely understated. I don't, you know, I've seen a few things that I've a quote in the, my book from the alopecia kind of foundation of, in, in the States, you know, it's just making the point that actually hormonal birth control is a leading cause of hair loss amongst women. So it needs, and yet it's almost never talked about. So wow. that's step one is to figure out, is it your um, Provera inject? Is it your Implanon? Is it your, any of those progestin drugs potentially? Yeah. implants Or Different types of pills can be causing hair loss. That looks like the, the male hormone type hair loss. That is the slow, gradual thinning of the hair follicles themselves. Like the hair, the hairs become smaller, and you know, don't grow as long. And it, it's um, it's difficult to reverse that actually. Once the hair follicles have been, or that's the hair roots have been exposed to male hormones. If that's gone on for years. They can, they do what's called miniaturization. They become smaller. It's quite difficult to reverse that sometimes, but Uh that's quite depressing, I know, to say. So, okay, so exposure to a a male type of birth control, hormonal birth control, or the next common one is PCOS. So exposure to your own male hormones can definitely cause that type of hair loss, which is quite distressing. And you do want to get on top of it um, really as soon as possible because it can become semi-permanent after a while. Uh, so you want you want to look at reducing androgens using some of the androgen blockers that I describe in my book, of which peony and licorice is one, zinc is one. Um, getting insulin down can do a lot of good things for lowering uh, androgens, cutting
0: the sugar but, and all that yeah, uh, yeah
1: exactly. and the the other type of hair loss that happens, which is worth mentioning, is post pill. This is probably this is where the tears come in my office after someone stopped the pill and then like three to six months later get this massive shed of you know hair all over the bathroom floor and it's you know it's quite alarming.
0: And traumatic, yeah. yeah. Oh. And that can
1: that can happen coming off any type of pill, even the pills that are high endogen, which is unfortunate. But what it can really happen is coming off one of the pills that are commonly used to treat PCOS, like Yaz or yasmin or those anti-androgen pills What i see with my own patients is when those drugs are stopped there can be then a surge in androgens again it starts a few months later so that could look like hair loss well and that can look like
0: Acne, as well. acne, yeah, that's what you Definitely. talked about a little bit in our video about the yeah. three months is when the acne actually sebum glands started over being overactive.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you get a couple um, months thinking, oh, it's going to be fine this time. No, I'm I'm in the clear. It's like, oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: wow! And I, I'm just glad that you mentioned it. this book. Is it just has a little bit of everything? So I'm really glad that that's mentioned because I don't think that's talked about very often. Um, I think. It, thinning hair and hair loss is, but, you know, I never connected it with birth control ever. Yep. I just, yep. that's, that's just powerful for people to know. Um, yep. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's just, we have, I can't wait to talk to you again. I know <laughs> we have so much we can talk about. I would like to know just from, to close it out for you. Okay. If somebody, they, they just don't, they don't want to get pregnant, right? So they, yep. they don't, they were, they're on birth control for the reasons of, I do not want to have babies. Um, yeah. What is the next step not, outside of just the process of getting out of birth control? What are your alternatives for uh, understanding your cycle? Do you use Kendara? Do you use natural cycles? Do you have anything that you suggest to help people understand their own ovulation for natural birth control? What are some of the things that you use if they're not going to use
1: birth control? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of period apps in general, and you just mentioned a couple of them. Um, they cannot, on its own, well, natural cycles potentially can be used to prevent pregnancy, although recently there was some kind of bad news about that one. But um, um, okay. I'll just say okay. on on its own, um, a period app cannot prevent pregnancy, even though like the period app will tell you a little ovulation window, but you can't rely on that to avoid pregnancy unless you're also taking temperature, which is the scientific measure mm. of um of ovulation because the, the, this is something called fertility awareness method it can be used to avoid pregnancy it, it's based on the principle that as women we are fertile for only six days per cycle and it's not rocket science to figure that out you can um use temperature you can learn to do it so kendara is one that you can use that way if you have learned how to do fertility awareness method yeah and you can learn how with the book called um, taking charge of your fertility or there's lots of people doing online training courses of how to do fertility awareness there's also another little device called daisy which kind of does it all for you which does those calculations
0: oh nice so i haven't of, heard of daisy
1: yeah so lots of different options about avoiding pregnancy that way and when it's done properly if you do your research and do it properly it can it's as effective as the pill mm. so up to 99 you know point something percent effective so that's Probably the most popular option is some method of some type of fertility awareness method. And then after that, just quickly, cause I know we're running out of time, but I'll say there's um, condoms and cervical cap and a new diaphragm. Those are all barrier methods, which are perfectly reasonable methods for avoiding pregnancy. If you're going to use condoms, I really recommend you get one that for your partner that fits. I link to the name of a condom brand in my book where they have Sixty different sizes of condoms, so he gets out the tape measure and measures and finds the one that fits. And I just think it's worth mentioning because
0: it can make Yeah. Sense. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> a thing,
1: and it's one of the things where you're like, why was that not a thing before? It's kind of, the analogy where yeah. actually said it's like it's yeah, it's like trying to wear the wrong size shoes or something. It's like then you think a oh, walking's not comfortable. You know, you hear people say, i you know I hate condoms because they fall off." It's like well, that could be the wrong size. So.
0: Yeah. Good to know. That's a good tip. And I, I just, I'm glad that I just think it was so scary for me to like understand that, that, I don't know. It's just, we're so, it's so in our head, right? It's like what your, your mission is teaching people the alternatives that, but it's true. My generation was like, I will get pregnant unless I'm on birth control, period. That's how it always felt. Like, so I just think it's so good that this is, and I just have had great success with, with Kendara just because. Yes of that temp, that thermometer that they have with it. Like I'm not endorsed by them. I don't, but I don't do well with things like, Uh, gadgets and things that I have to charge. I I just don't like keeping track of things outside of my own keys and my cat. So uh, it's been nice because it's small. You can't tell it's a thermometer and it's literally connected to my phone. So as soon as I roll over from bed, I put it under my tongue and then it instantly goes into my phone's logging of what my temperature is. So uh, I haven't tried the others, but I just know from experience of if you don't do well with tracking things in the organization which is me yeah. then that it worked really well
1: yeah i like to look at uh, Kindara's little kind of sinking thermometer yeah so yeah it's cute good. right they did a good yeah. job <laughs> so that's the way um that's yeah that's a type of fertility awareness method uh, but with Kindara, you do you, i'll just i'm sure i mean you're doing it but i'll just mention for your listeners you do need to kind of be a bit savvy and kind of know what you're looking at when you look at your charts and yeah that's kind of true right decision.
0: yeah so Daisy, I'll look into Daisy. I haven't heard yeah. of that one. So um, that's so great. Well, Dr. Brighton, this is so wonderful. I have a, a final question for you, as you know, is coming. Okay. Um, <laughs> what is your spirit animal?
1: I have to say a bear. Um, um, I'm from the, I grew up in the mountains in Canada, so I know bears. You know, I've encountered them a number of times in my life out in the mountains. On the, and I you know, sleep in a tent in the mountains knowing they're out there and I, I like them.
0: You just feel safe of, with them.
1: Well, I'm a little bit scared of them, but <laughs> it's thrilling to see them and uh, yeah, they're, they're
0: quietly. <laughs> that's so wonderful. With what do you? Is it black bears or brown bears? What do you have in New Zealand?
1: Oh, New Zealand, we don't have any bears. No, but I'm oh. from Canada, and oh, Canada,
0: you said camping in Canada. Yeah. Yes, so
1: yeah, well, that's one weird thing about camping in New Zealand. No bears here, but yeah, th- we we have both grizzly bears and black bears, and where I'm from in Canada, and I've encountered both, and yeah, I like them.
0: Well, the first line of my animal, spirit animal book is you're assertive and confident with a strong presence and you are a powerful healer physically, oh. emotionally, and spiritually, which I think is accurate for you, Dr. Barden. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I, I seriously, I'm going to have you back on. And also again, for the body awareness project for the second installments, because I want to talk about, uh, adrenals and circadian rhythms with you. I think that would be so great. So, so many things and where can they find you? I know you're at, uh, larabryden.com and.
1: That's my blog, larabriden.com, and then all social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lara Braden, And my book is Period Repair Manual.
0: And guys, it's wonderful. <laughs> Ladies, I guess I should say. Ladies, it's wonderful. And well, if you guys are
1: can, yeah, guys can read it as well. I've had a number of people read it who they're, you know, clinicians or practitioners or personal trainers, or this is what I say to men, to everyone, but I'll just say it. I will close with this. If you're not thinking about ovulation, you're not thinking about health for half the humans on the planet. So.
0: That is a good closer. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> you are wonderful, and we will we will talk soon. Okay.
1: Thanks, Tim.